Hello, transplant community. This is Alex Bixby, and welcome back to the mTOR You Know podcast, hosted by the ACCP IMTR PRN New Practitioners Council. Today, we have part one of our manuscript and authorship podcast. We have some great speakers joining us today to go over getting started on your manuscript and many of the important components that go into manuscript writing. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, thank you for tuning into the mTOR You Know podcast. This podcast is created by members of the ACCP Immunology and Transplant PRN New Practitioner Council. Um, I will be one of your hosts today. My name is Kelsey Zakowskis. I just finished my PGY2 in solid organ transplant at the University of Utah Health, and I'm currently working as a PRN transplant pharmacist there and soon to transition over as a transplant pharmacist at UC Davis. And I'm Isai Area. I completed my PGY1 residency at Allegheny General Hospital out in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I'm currently the PGY2 solid organ transplant pharmacy resident at the University of Illinois at Chicago this year. And it is our pleasure to introduce our panelists today. And thank you so much panelists for being with us. I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Lindsay Bowman. Um, she is an abdominal organ transplant pharmacotherapy specialist co-residency program director of the PGY2 solid organ transplant residency program and clinical coordinator of the transplant pharmacist at Tampa General Hospital in Tampa, Florida. In addition to serving as primary author on various manuscripts throughout her career, Lindsay has also collaborated on several joint manuscripts and recently served as a guest editor for the solid organ transplant themed special issue in pharmacotherapy. And we also have with us Dr. Jennifer Trophy-Clark, who has been practicing as a clinical transplant pharmacist for the past 21 years, with the last 16 years spent practicing at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, PA. Her clinical focus areas have been kidney and pancreas transplant, as well as hand transplant. Her current role, she oversees research efforts in the abdominal transplant program at her institution, and she also serves as the chair of the Pharmacy Residency Research Committee. She holds an adjunct associate professor of medicine appointment at the renal and electrolyte and hypertension division of the Associated Faculty of the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. She's also elected fellow of both the American College of Clinical Pharmacy and an integral or an inaugural fellow at the American Society of Transplantation. To date, she has published over 85 articles in peer-reviewed transplant and pharmacy journals and also serves as a reviewer for multiple peer-reviewed journals. Thank you both for joining us today. So to get started, there's so much out there when it comes to authorship and manuscript writing. So for a new practitioner like both of us, where do you start? Yeah, this is Lindsay. I want to thank you guys for inviting us to be here today. I'm really excited um, to take part in this podcast. So I think, you know, one of the things that I always think about when I am trying to determine, you know, what, what should be published, what would be of value to add to the literature, it really stems from day-to-day -day clinical practice. So anytime that you are treating your patients, when you're looking for something to figure out you know, what is causing X in your patient or what should we be doing differently for our patients as a whole, really think 
and you're looking into the literature to try to answer some of those questions, that's where a lot of those research questions arise. And so I keep a running list. Um, I am a big proponent and user of OneNote. And so I have a running list on my computer that I you know, think of research ideas that will hopefully then evolve into publications and manuscripts to add to add to the literature. Um, to, this is Jennifer Trophy Clark to supplement with Lindsay said. Um, first, I'd like to uh, thank the PRN New Practitioners Group for inviting us to this podcast today. We're very excited to be here. And similar to what Lindsay said, a lot of times we end up discussing ideas on rounds or also in clinical conferences. Sometimes someone's presenting and you see how little data is available on a topic and the light bulb goes off and you say, hmm, we should probably look at our own experience and see what we can do with that. Um, other ideas, uh, if you're looking at posters or abstracts from prior transplant or pharmacy meetings and thinking maybe you could supplement that experience or expand upon based on your um, your institution's experience, that's a way to do it. Um, and also collaboration between preceptors and the multidisciplinary team, um, particularly within our pharmacy research committee. Um, I work with a lot of practitioners outside the transplant, um, and we have sometimes ideas that cross-pollinate, for example, oncology and transplant um, and come up with new projects together. So definitely a lot of different avenues to explore for sure. Thank you so much for those tips. I think it's definitely important to just keep ideas flowing as the literature is very minimal in transplant and always, I feel like a lot of the studies we see out there have very small sample sizes with our patients. So any ideas that we can generate is wonderful. And so you guys kind of led into this, but um, as you're coming up with research projects and thinking about publishing projects and the literature and research that you're looking into, um, how do you decide where you're going to publish and what type of article you're going to go after, whether that's just a general um, overall research article or a letter to the editor, how, what kind of thought process goes into that? Lindsay, do you want to go first? Sure. Yeah, I can go first. Um, you know, I think it, you know, you kind of alluded to this, it kind of stems from what is the paper that you're wanting to publish? Is it a research project that you have conducted? Is it a review article that you feel like there's a gap in the literature and that could be, you know, well served to the transplant or pharmacy community to write a review article? Or is it an invited review? Um, and if it is an invited review, then obviously that would be from a specific, a specific journal. Um, you know, I think that early in my career, a lot of the papers that I wrote were invited reviews, not invited reviews for me, but for the physicians that I worked with. So honestly, I have to um, owe a lot of my early publications to Dr. Dan Brennan because he was approached by multiple people and journals to write review articles. And he gave me that opportunity as a young new transplant pharmacist to really get my feet wet and collaborate with him. And so that's a lot of what I did in the beginning were review articles. Um, but I think, you know, thinking about the different types, 
at least early in the career, it's probably going to be research that you've done or precepted or reviews. I don't know, Jen, if you have anything to add about them. Yeah, I think another, um, while I entirely agree with you, I think of two other areas. One is letters to the editor. If you have a really unique case, a patient case that you think others would benefit about hearing about, um, you know, you can't publish one case as an original article, a research article. So um, in certain circumstances, it may be beneficial to publish that instead as a letter to the editor. Or maybe you have two or three cases that you've seen something very unique about that you haven't found anything in the literature about. You may want to consider publishing that in that um, framework as the letter to the editor. Um, Another uh, venue that I've seen more of later in my career than earlier in my career is collaboration through, for example, um, the community of practice within the American Society of Transplantation, the Transplant Pharmacy Group. Sometimes um, we will come up with an idea for guidelines or something that we want to um, extend the clinical practice guidelines for. And so we collaborate together as a multidisciplinary effort on writing something. Um, Similarly, that can happen with review articles as well, or even with original research sometimes. Um, Maybe your sample size at your site is small, but if you collaborate with five of your uh, close pharmacist friends or um, transplant colleagues, you may be able to have something that has much greater impact that you then um, submit as an original article publication. Wonderful. Those are great tips on how to get involved and kind of navigate where to publish some of this research. And so um, early into early into your guys's career, um, with regards to getting involved with review articles, how did you kind of get yourself into those opportunities and put yourself out there to be able to be um, involved in publishing those? Yeah, I think speaking from, you know, my experience early in my career, I just made it known, you know, I was in, I was an engaged member of the team just clinically, which, you know, obviously is very important day to day and for patient care, but then also just literally sending an email, talking about it on rounds. Hey, if you have an opportunity to, you know, write a paper, please, you know, include me if it's something that you feel like I should be included on. And so I think just making it known and then you know, it shows that you are interested. It also shows that you probably are going to be dependable and and show up to the opportunity and and produce something that is well-written because it shows that you're you're motivated and you want to be involved. I also think, you know, to to point out some of the things that, that Jen was talking about, with regard to organizational collaboration, I think getting involved within ACCP, IMTR, PRN, um, and also AST, Transplant Pharmacy Community of Practice, and being involved in both of those organizations and subcommittees, that's when you're going to be introduced to colleagues at other institutions to where you can think about collaborating in terms of clinical practice research projects. And then also when ideas come up about writing collaborative review articles or consensus recommendations, then you're gonna be at the table for those discussions as well. And I would add to that, um, 
as well as the organizations within the work groups that you can collaborate with within both organizations, for example, the American Society of Transplantation and ACCP IM, um, TRPRN. Um, there's also opportunities at national meetings where you're networking. You may have, for example, a poster presentation. Someone says, hey, I have a similar population. Maybe you decide you want to combine your patient populations and publish together. Um, I've definitely had that happen very early in my career. Um, one of my main research areas from the time I was a resident until now has been BK virus uh, nephropathy. And so there was very little literature out there when I started. Um, and we still, as most of you know, do not have any um, great preventative or treatment um, therapies other than reduction of immunosuppression and monitoring. Um, so literally, this is an area that uh, I've been writing on and um, had opportunities to be involved in research in for over two decades now. And literally, it started out as my residency project as, you know, as a PGY2. <laughs> That's amazing to see the progression of that involvement with research in BK, because it's definitely something I've seen in my short time of, of a struggle. So it's great to see that you kind of get to set your niche of what you like and kind of progress forward with research into that. And so once you guys develop a research project or you do a review article or something, what thought process goes into where and uh, what specific journal you're going to publish in? Jen, do you want to take the lead on this one? Sure. Um, I think the most important question when you're thinking about what journal you're going to publish it in is who is the audience that you want to see this information and utilize this information? Um, is it transplant surgeons, for example? Is it transplant nephrologists? Is it pharmacists? And think about what journal best um, serves your target audience. And typically that's where you start. Um, but there are also scenarios where you say different aspects of the same project may be applicable to different populations where you may end up publishing more than one uh, article and you may put a different spin on that article for a pharmacy journal and publish a different subset of that uh, information in a transplant journal, for example. So I think there's different approaches you can take and talk to your um, mentors and colleagues and ask them where for some ideas of where they would think it would be as well. Um, the answers are pretty insightful most times. Lindsay? Yeah, I totally agree. I think the audience is, you know, the biggest one. And I think you'll figure that out more, um, you know, the more you become familiar with various journals. And the more that you're reading different articles and manuscripts in the literature to kind of know what is, what is the target? You know, if you're looking at a research project of how to incorporate students into research and you want to publish your findings, then that might be suited, you know, more for something like JACCP instead of American Journal of Transplantation. So thinking about, you know, exactly what Jennifer said, pharmacy journals versus you know, more transplant or medicine journals. And so really trying to figure that out um, up front. I think one thing that has, I've, I guess I've noticed or paid more attention to recently is also in the way of publication fees and thinking about, you know, if there are publication fees for specific journals and the pharmacy department or whoever you're publishing with doesn't have funds to allocate towards that, 
you know, is that something that is going to be prohibited, prohibitive for you? I do know that most journals do have, um, I guess, grants or assistance, if you will, a lot of times for authors that don't have research funds to pay the publication fees. I have never used um, one of those or looked into it, but I know that those do exist. So not to say that it's completely impossible for you to publish in certain in certain um, journals that have higher publication fees, but I think that is something to also consider or look into before completely formatting your manuscript and submitting to a given journal. Yeah, definitely. I think it's to to your point. It's really important to find that right fit and know what resources are at your disposal, particularly when you're looking to publish and especially as new practitioners having those resources and knowing the people who we can go to that know about these resources is super important. I think also keeping in mind the cost is something I've definitely looked at when looking to publish uh, research projects from residency even just that's not something you really think about when you're in the depths of research so that's great advice for I think new practitioners to have. And then I think um, another question and something that's really, I think I've struggled with um, when writing research projects up for publication um, as a shorter article or, or a longer article is just how much detail to put into the introduction versus the discussion versus the results section and trying not to have a lot of overlap throughout those pieces. And I know this is definitely probably different from each research project you write up or each article you write, but what kind of thought process goes into that when you guys are writing up something for publication? I was going to say, I think that's one of the things that, um, you know, is really important to think about and assess even before you start your outline of the manuscript is looking at what is the word count of the manuscript and looking at other articles within that journal that it would be similar to yours to kind of give you an idea of how to best model um, and, and make it, you know, informative, but yet cohesive. And I think when you build out your outline, it would be then important to think about how what should my word count look like for the introduction, for the discussion. And a lot of that, you know, as you alluded to, is going to be dependent on what are you writing about? How much, you know, how many articles have already been published on this given research project that you're going to be published that should therefore be in the discussion? And so I think that that will give you an idea of, of kind of how long each section should be, but still staying within the constraints of the journal specifications? I would agree. Um, typically, kind of the framework I use is for the introduction, it should be shorter than the discussion. Um, you're talking maybe three paragraphs at most. Um, you're um, framing the context for of your study question. What background is there? Um, why is it important for someone to know what is the nature of the problem, the significance, and what were the specific aims, for example, of your study? Um, the discussion, usually I try to keep it to approximately five paragraphs in general. Some people will say four to eight paragraphs. I 
tend to aim around five. Um, and what you would do is your first paragraph should re, um, briefly summarize your main findings without restating all your results. Um, that's a mistake a lot of people do. Um, it doesn't need to be restated entirely. You can look at the results section for that, but you should summarize what the main findings are. And really that should be the first paragraph of your discussion. Um, your second paragraph should look um, at a high level overview of the other literature that's out there, um, you know, and how are your results different from that literature that's out there. Um, and then the third paragraph will be an emphasis on what's new and different with your study versus the other literature that's out there. What are the um, some of the observed differences, for example? And then you should wrap up with strengths and limitations of your study, as well as uh, conclusions and future directions. And um, there's Thank also you. a great reference that um, is in, I think it was in JACCP uh, by uh, Drake Hammond and Megan Reck, and it's actually a how-to guide for effectively writing a publishable research manuscript. And I really like that article because there's a nice table in there that actually summarizes some of this information and breaks it down um, in terms of how long each section should be, what should the focus be, it has references for each section, and it also even goes into detail in terms of where should you start, which section should you write first versus what should you save until later. So maybe a good reference to check out for more information as well. Definitely. Thank you guys for all those tips. It's definitely overwhelming sitting down at first, especially when you're new to writing manuscripts and really trying to figure out what your style is and how you want to present all of this information in a concise but also incredibly informative way. So having those tools and you know those references is incredibly helpful. So kind of taking a little turn here. So we're sitting down, we're writing our manuscript. But while we're doing that, what is a reasonable timeline? How do you guys like to set up your authorship in terms of I'm going to dedicate this much time to this manuscript versus a different manuscript? And, you know, how much time is too much time when you're authoring this uh, types of articles and whatnot? I think that's a great question, Aoife, and not an easy one to answer. Um, oftentimes there's multiple manuscripts um, that are in different stages, at least in my world, and there's different collaborators and timelines for each of them that I'm working with. Um, so, for example, for resident research, I think it's super important to have a a very defined timeline um, because you have a very limited time frame to complete that work. You're literally trying to do longitudinal research and have a publishable manuscript by the end of a year. So it's very important to have a well-defined timeline and stick as closely as possible to it. Um, I think other times, different timelines, if you're working with like a larger group, a work group, for example, an international work group uh, publication, the timelines may be dictated by something other than your schedule. Um, and you have to make sure that you're able to commit to those timelines before committing to the project. Um, and then I think if you uh, have your own projects, for me, I always uh, keep everything in my calendars with an ongoing spreadsheet to see where I am, what's coming up ahead of time, and making sure that I can try to build time into my schedule wherever feasible to stay close to that timeline. I agree, and I really don't have anything to add because I, I feel like 
generally outline that perfectly. And I would just highlight, you know, one of the things she said is just thinking about competing priorities and other demands before you agree to be part of a collaborative um, project or collaborative manuscript for sure. Yeah, and along the lines of competing priorities, how do you guys prioritize certain journal articles that you're writing over others? Are there certain things that you're interested in or looking to get out there sooner? How do you kind of navigate what do I prioritize versus what can kind of fit for a little bit? Jen, I'm going to kick this over. I'm actually going to, I'm going to kick it to you because I feel like you probably have many balls in your court at the same time. So I would love to hear your perspective on this. Um, Yeah, this, this same uh, scenario just came up recently. So, um, you know, we've been doing a lot of COVID-related research at our center. So that's top priority to get out. Uh, that went out first. Um, that took a little bit of precedence over some of the other um, transplant-related projects that are still important, um, such as, you know, BK monitoring, for example. Um, still very important to get out there, but not as time-sensitive as something related, for example, to COVID. So I, I think you also have to look at what else is being published in the literature uh, and what are you looking to contribute to the literature. Um, some of the timelines also depend on my colleagues. For example, if I have an author go on sabbatical and they're not able to uh, work at that same capacity, maybe they were before sabbatical, we have to make a plan to get that article done before they go out on sabbatical. Um, so there's varying things. Um, I think it's important to be cognizant of everyone's timelines and um, time you know, including your own um, and try to balance it as best as possible. Yeah, I agree. I don't, I don't really have much to add to that. um, But I definitely agree that you have to try to make set reasonable expectations for both you and all of the authors on all of the papers and also make sure that you're able to commit to all of the things and I guess follow through if you will with all of the things that you that you said that you would you know be involved with so I think that's all great information on kind of how to keep all of this straight and I know um, Lindsay and Jennifer you both have lots of things always going on and so kind of how do you keep yourself on task and keep yourself focused with all these different projects going on. You guys must be great multitaskers. So how do you kind of keep all of the information straight for each articles? I, um, like I said before, I use OneNote quite a bit um, to try to keep myself organized and really have different tabs within there of the ongoing projects that I have um, that I'm currently doing, whether that's organizational things, committees, you know, things at work, protocol development, manuscript writing, they all kind of coincide and overlap all the time. And I know that you guys feel that and felt that in residency and that continues throughout your life as a clinical pharmacist. Um, And so I think learning how to multitask and set deadlines and meet deadlines in your residency and then early, you know, in your career is really important and kind of sets the stage to make sure that you are able to deliver on all of the things that you said that you were going to deliver on. You know, one of the things, one of the 
big points that I tell all of the residents when they are ending their residency year and starting their, their first career is to not overcommit and under deliver because that is a very good way um, to, to show very quickly that you aren't going to be reliable. And that's not something that you want to, you know, start your career on. And so I think, you know, again, looking at everything, all of the demands, all of the competing priorities that you have at any given time when somebody asked you to be involved with X, Y, or Z, and really assessing if that's something and taking some time to think about, is that something that's feasible for you to do at the time? I think to add to that as well, I know for me, it helps to have regularly scheduled meetings Um, You know, whether that be usually it's more frequently than quarterly, but, you know, bi-monthly maybe, or depending if I'm working on a resident during certain time frames, we might have weekly meetings and we might go to monthly meetings. But at least for me, that helps to keep me on task and also um, keep communication flowing both ways where we might be running into barriers. Um, You know, for example, say you haven't received what you thought you were going to receive from the statistician and it's sort of fallen off your radar. And, you know, a lot of times, unfortunately, because of the other competing responsibilities, especially the clinical ones, that may be something that we we have in the back of our minds, but we're not really thinking about and saying, oh, you know, they'll get back to me eventually, um, you know, as an example. Um, But if we have a meeting where we're going through those, um, every meeting going through those tasks, and saying, okay, where are we? Did we hear back from the statistician? Did we hear back from such and such collaborator? Where are we on getting this methods updated? Um, And making sure that everyone um, has adequate time to complete that and timelines that are going to work for everyone. And, you know, sometimes you need to reassess those and reassign as needed. Um, But it's really important to have that open communication to keep things moving forward. Um, otherwise, you know, it tends to sometimes fall by the wayside, not because you don't think it's important, but just because there's so many um, competing priorities. And as Lindsay said, it's really important to actually be able to deliver on what you commit to. Absolutely. And there's so many moving parts. There's so much as a primary investigator or the lead author on a paper to kind of keep tabs on and keep track of. Thank you, everyone, and that's all the time that we have for part one of this podcast. Join us for part two of the podcast where we go more in-depth on authorship, revisions, and peer review. And that's the M. Tori You Know.